Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking to Democratic Senate candidate Mark Kelly. We'll ask him about his plans for the 2020 election and what comes after that in Washington. Mark Kelly is a retired NASA astronaut and naval combat veteran. He officially became the Democratic Senate nominee after winning the August primary. He ran uncontested. Democrat Mark Kelly will be taking on Republican Senator Martha McSally in November. Arizona's Senate race continues to be one of the most competitive races in the country. Current polls show Kelly leading Senator Martha McSally. Here's our interview with Mark Kelly, recorded on August 12th. Thanks so much for joining us on The Gaggle, Commander Kelly. We all knew 2020 was going to be a very big year, but this isn't the year that a lot of us expected. How, if at all, has the coronavirus and the recession, the push for social justice after the slain of George Floyd, changed the way that you think about some of our nation's most pressing issues like healthcare? So, yeah, I think when I got started in February of 2019, that's almost a year and a half ago, I had the opportunity to travel across the state and really listen to people about the issues that are facing them and often that Washington isn't effectively dealing with issues that you mentioned, like healthcare, as, as a perfect example. Um, but also, I, I think folks realize that uh, things change and they can change very rapidly. And our country can found, find, ourselves in a, find ourselves in a situation where we've got new and very pressing problems. And I've been thinking about that lately. And the problems that we're facing today, some of them are going to be rather hard to solve. We have a public health crisis. We have an economic crisis. We also have a crisis of leadership uh, that is affecting both of those things. So I think it's an, an important that um, we elect folks to, you know, to the United States Senate, to Congress, to federal office, elected leaders that are uh, flexible, that are willing to think ahead, that can anticipate things and make good decisions like where you can, you know, you, you can say, hey, I got I got that right. Um, and, and that's going to be key to solving the problems that we face. But we're only going to solve these things, whether it's a health care issue, uh, making sure folks have access to health care. And we're finding now with higher unemployment rates that more folks and this is disproportionately affecting people of color are going to find themselves without health care. And it's on us here uh, to make sure that there's options uh, that folks can get health care, that they can keep it if they have a pre-existing condition, uh, that they can afford. Um, but we're only going to solve these problems uh, if we work together as a team. And that's that's been so clear to me in my entire history, my, my entire adult life as a pilot in the Navy, uh, as the commander of the space shuttle. You know, I did the I did a lot of things there. I flew in combat. I flew in space. Never once did I do that by myself. It's always about teamwork. Some portions of your party, the more liberal factions of the party, are calling for police departments to be defunded or for money to otherwise be reallocated. What is your position on these calls? 
Well, I am not in favor of defunding the the police. Uh, We clearly need police reform, but we don't need to be defunding departments. I mean, I'm the son of two cops. My mother was one of the first female police officers in northern New Jersey, and her journey to becoming a cop is one of the things that really got me on a better path, really motivated me, got me working harder at school, got me setting goals. I mean, I owe a lot to to my mom and her decision to become a police officer. Um, But at the same time, there are systemic issues that we have in our justice system that require reform. Well, how do we as a society, you know, how do we approach, how do we fix and stop these really alarming examples of police assaulting and even killing at times people of color over sometimes very trivial encounters? Well, I think there needs to be better oversight, better accountability and investigations that are independent. You know, that that is clear. And I I think most of us that that are trying to think through this and think through it thoughtfully realize that there has been a lack of a lack of those things to date. The Justice Department clearly has to do a better job. Uh, We've got to address the issue of qualified immunity. We've got to give leaders in departments the tools they need uh, to, uh, you know, find the, the police officers that are not doing the job or can't do the job and take steps to make sure they're never in a position uh, to commit these acts against usually people of color. So we have these systemic issues. They need to be addressed. Um, like everything else, it needs to be, in my opinion, this should be done in a bipartisan way in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Commander, if I could get you to uh, shift gears back to healthcare for a moment, um, you support a public option style uh, health uh, reforms that seems like it's not as transformative as the Medicare for all uh, system that has been pitched by folks, most notably uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, you're also not um, uh, on board with the Republican plan that's been percolating in the Senate that Senator McSally has signed on to that really uh, sort of uh, the bedrock on that seems to be to uh, uh, suggest that there would be required coverage of pre-existing conditions uh, with some fine print there. Give us a sense, though, of what this middle option of a public option that you support, what that would meaningfully mean for people in Arizona and across the country. So, Ron, um, as, as you know, you know, my background, especially the time I spent at NASA and a, and a test pilot, folks with my kind of background are more incremental change kind of people. We have problems with our healthcare system. These are solvable problems. I am not in favor of telling 156 million Americans who get their health insurance from their employer that that's going to go away and we're going to give you something new. Public option at a certain for certain in, in at certain times clearly makes sense. In areas where there is little competition on the healthcare exchange, let's say there's one insurer uh, providing a public option there clearly makes sense. With competition, you can bring down the price. Prices are too high. Copays and deductibles are too high. I see this as I, as I spent the first year of this campaign, 
physically traveling around the state, but now virtually traveling around the state, I hear this over and over again. The price of prescription drugs are too high. I think it makes sense to allow individuals to buy into Medicare uh, at, a, at a certain age. Uh, and, you know, clearly, as we have experienced since March with higher unemployment rates and folks that are going to be losing or have lost their jobs and then lost their health insurance, we need to look at ways to provide health insurance when people have no other option. Um, and then there are the details that the one detail you referred to has to do with a pre-existing condition for healthcare. I, I was speaking with this uh, mom recently. Her name was Ophelia uh, Kinez, and she had a son who had some serious healthcare issues that he was that he had from a accident when he was younger, when he was in college, but he had serious healthcare issues. And because of her job and her income, she could not, and she had healthcare issues as well, and they couldn't afford medication for both of them. So she would alternate who got their medication that, that week or that month. Now, uh, sadly, he died of COVID-19 recently, but she would tell me that as he got older, she was terrified that um, he wouldn't be able to get any health insurance because of his pre-existing condition. That's something that I hear over and over again as I'm connecting with folks throughout our entire state. They're worried about that. And, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, where my opponent stands on this, you, 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 you brought it up. I mean, she has, she has voted at least four times to take away those protections that Arizonans rely on if they have a pre-existing condition, which, by the way, from my understanding, it's about 2 million Arizonans fall into that category. They could lose their health insurance if the legislation that she voted on was eventually enacted. That's at the top of so many Arizonans' list of the things that they're concerned about. And uh, as a follow-up to that, the system that you would like to see implemented uh, how do we pay for the additional cost that would be associated with this expanded coverage, the increased competition that that would bring about? Well, you, you mean the so a, a public option um, on an exchange uh, implies that that is competition for an insurer that is already delivering health care on the exchange. So that's purchased health care. So in theory, a person who goes on the exchange and there's two options, they decide to go with the public option, they would be paying the United States government for that health care. Um, the same thing as buying into Medicare at a certain age, let's say it's 50 or 55 years old. So there would be revenue uh, coming from the, the insured person. Um, but when you talk about access as an example and adding uh, additional uh, Arizonans to what we call access, which is Medicaid, there is a cost that needs to be paid for by the from the government for that. And to be clear on that, I I, I want to um, just make clear: Do you think that uh, just the insurance premiums paid by the consumers would cover the full cost of the additional health care coverage under that plan, or would this require more public? Uh, you know, uh, money to help provide the full spectrum of service? Well, these are the things we got to sort out. 
right? I mean, healthcare is a complicated issue. There are problems with our healthcare system. There are protections that individuals and families got recently under the last administration that they now value. We don't want those protections to go away, but there are issues of cost, premiums, deductible, co-pays, who are gonna, who's gonna pay, pay for this stuff? That's why Congress has to work in a bipartisan way and also in a way that's free from influence from insurers and free from influence from big pharmaceutical companies. That's why in February of 2019, a year and a half ago, when I announced I was going to run for the United States Senate, one of the things I made very clear was I'm not going to take any corporate PAC money because I don't want to ever feel that I have to do what's in best what's in the best interest of a pharmaceutical company or a big insurance company. So these are issues that members of Congress are going to have to work on in a bipartisan way to come up with something that makes sense. And I really struggle with this as I, you know, as I observe um, from on the outside, you know, how partisan and polarized our politics have become. And it really is, has made it very difficult for I mean, I, th I think to some extent we have a government that barely functions at this point. Um, we need more independence. We need people working across the aisle. We don't need partisanship and polarization. We can solve these problems, but it's only going to be if we work together. So that very partisanship has gridlocked Washington when it comes to this next relief package. Um, Senator McSally, along with Republicans and Democrats, have voted for trillions of dollars worth of aid since March to help um, Americans manage this crisis. What else specifically would you like to see done to manage the fallout of this pandemic when it comes to unemployment assistance, aid for small businesses, moratoriums on evictions, um, more help for the tribes? I mean, what specifically would you like to see? Well, the first two things you mentioned, I've been talking about a lot, Not, and those other two things really matter as well, but unemployment benefits. I mean, clearly, we've got millions of Americans through no fault of their own have lost a job. And in, in a, in a, go back a year from now, a year ago, individuals would have been able to go out and find other employment in, in most places. And that's not the situation today. So through no fault of their own, they're now unemployed, no income, trying to put food on their table to feed their kids, trying to keep a roof over their heads. This is a horrible situation. And when you think about the, what the role of government is here um, to support individuals in a time of crisis, I mean, this is really clearly a national crisis we're dealing with, but we have an economic crisis because of the public health crisis. And uh, we, we also need to stimulate the economy. By providing unemployment benefits, we do both of those things because you know that the person that gets that unemployment check, or in the case of somebody from Arizona, gets an enhanced unemployment check from the federal government, they are very likely to spend it. So that is a clear focus that needs to be solved here, and it can't wait. I mean, this is what's frustrating is the House had a piece of legislation, um, and then in, in the Senate, there was much too long of a delay. And now we have families here in Arizona that are trying to get by on less than $300 a week. And that's inc it's incredibly challenging. And now we, have, we also have small businesses um, who have had to shut down through no fault of their own. And we've got to continue to provide the support that these small businesses need, loans, grants, 
to make sure that they are there. And it, but it has to be managed correctly, that they are that the businesses will be there as the public health crisis starts to subside and the economy can come back, that the small businesses are there for individuals to go and find employment. Follow up on that. How would you rate Senator McSally's performance um, in overseeing and handling this crisis and messaging this crisis to Arizonans? Well, I would I would say uh, not well. I always try to be fair. Um, and I respect Senator McSally's service in the Air Force. And I know she's somebody that she she's likely looking at the data and trying to make decisions based based on the data. But very early on, if you go if you go to look at look at some of the comments or the lack of comments in January and then in June, encouraging people uh, to go on spring break, go on, um, you know, go go out to restaurants, go do, you know, these things that were clearly not on the list of the CDC and the NIH, their recommendations on how we're going to stop the spread of this virus. So I am concerned um, that there was advice that came from Senator McSally's office that was not in the best interest of public health here, here in our state and across the country. Let's stay with uh, Senator McSally for just a second. Uh, she and her allies have uh, repeatedly attacked you over your business dealings with China and uh, notably the Worldview Enterprises uh, Business Association in particular. Um, this is a business that received investment support from a Chinese tech firm that has allegedly censored or spied on uh, its people as the ruling Communist Party in China has has asked of it. Can you please clarify your role in um, in worldview and how uh, that Tencent um, tech firm became associated with that company and, uh, you know, sketch out your thoughts on, on what this all means as it relates to uh, current China? Well, let me let me start off by saying that the attacks that Senator McSally uh, has been putting on the air against me, personal attacks, have been fact-checked uh, by PolitiFact, by newspapers, and off found, you know, false. And this is also the playbook she used in 2018, is to go after your opponent in a very personal way, question their patriotism. Um, and, and it's something she didn't say until she received a briefing paper by National Republicans, that this is a playbook, this is what you should should do. And remember that, you know, in the, in the case of Senator McSally, she wasn't standing up to this administration in January when the president of the United States said, hey, I've got a great relationship with uh, Xi Jinping uh, and he's handling coronavirus well. And uh, the administration even thanked uh, China on behalf of the American people. Senator McSally said nothing. So it wasn't until it became a political issue for her uh, that she started putting negative ads uh, on TV about a business that I was associated with, which brings high paying jobs to Southern Arizona. I mean, the average 
salary at Worldview is $92,000 a year. It has millions of dollars of economic impact to Southern Arizona. It's high tech. It's, it's good paying jobs. That also, when you start a job and you create a job in a community, it also results in other jobs. And to question my service uh, to this country and my patriotism, I'm somebody, I served in the United States Navy for 25 years. I served in the Western Pacific aboard an aircraft carrier. I dealt with the Chinese Air Force and the Chinese Navy in an operational environment. I have that experience. Senator McSally doesn't. I mean, she'll talk about this when it becomes, when it's political, when it becomes a political issue. So my background, um, and, and I've also dealt with the, the, the Chinese uh, as the commander of the space shuttle. They sh shoot down one of their satellites, created a big problem for me, an international incident. I understand that China is not, is not a friend, that they are an adversary. You know, Senator McSally only understands that when it's the politically expedient thing to do. But my involvement with the with the company was because, well, after I left NASA, you know, I had experience as an astronaut and as a test pilot and had the opportunity to be involved in something that could be a positive thing for the state of Arizona. Um, and. Leaders in Arizona got this. I mean, Senator John McCain, as an example, was there at our the ribbing, ribbon cutting ceremony for the facility. Um, and the, the company that you mentioned, you know, to specifically answer the question, I mean, they they invest in Uber, Spotify, Tesla, Snapchat, other other companies, um, you know, other tech companies uh, throughout the United States. Beijing was pretty slow to come clean about the threat and the spread of this new coronavirus, this sort of longstanding one country, two systems approach that offered a measure of freedom to those in Hong Kong appears to be over. President Xi has done away with term limits. Would you describe ally, China as an ally, a rival, an enemy or something else? As an adversary, clearly. Um, I would not ever describe them as an ally. And I think the administration in the White House, they, they are clearly an adversary. Uh, and one of our, one of the most significant adversaries and adversarial relationships that we have to deal with, uh, when you consider the size of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, the size of their military, and the investment they're making in military hardware not transparently, I mean, rather covertly, uh, we've got to be concerned about, you know, China's actions, not only in the Western Pacific, but across the globe. And if you've followed what this administration has said uh, about, you know, China, you will often, you know, early on see that they probably would not have agreed with that observation, that they're an adversary. But I don't, I don't say these things based on what is the politically right thing to do. I say it based on experience. And um, I, I've lived in the Western Pacific, you know, in the in the late 80s. And we, we clearly have to pay attention to China's actions very closely. Uh, it is in our national strategic, our national security interest to uh, understand 
that they are an adversary and in no way are is a friend of the United States on these issues. And you you mentioned um, in January with the coronavirus. Well, I don't know why anybody would think that they would be clear with us on that. They're not going to be transparent. For voters and folks who are, you know, sitting down watching TV, getting their mail every day, um, getting mailers that tie you to, to China. What is your message to those who might say that your past business dealings with China, you know, don't really allow you to credibly push the country on human rights issues or fa- fair trade issues? Well, it's, it, it's ridiculous. It's negative campaigning. Senator McSally must be doing it because she thinks uh, it'll work. It's what she did in 2018. I think voters are tired of it, Yvonne, to be honest with you. I think they're just sick of the negative campaigning. That's why I don't do it. You know, I'd rather lose the election than run a campaign like Senator McSally is running with negative attacks. I mean, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I'm going to try to talk to people about the issues. I think contrast is important. You know, Senator McSally has a voting record. If you're a if you're worried about your health care and you have a pre-existing condition like two million Arizonans have, you might be concerned about Senator McSally's future votes in the United States Senate and what that means to you and your family. I think that's a clear um, that's an important issue. Um, but, you know, I am uh, I'm not a politician. You know, I'm somebody that I really I, I, I believe in in our state. We've got a history of independence, people working across the aisle, not being partisan and not just negatively attacking people all the time. Senator John McCain is a perfect example of that. I think we need more of that, more of that. So uh, let's stay with uh, future votes in the Senate. Um, During Congressman John Lewis's funeral, uh, former President Barack Obama certainly outlined the case for doing away with the filibuster in its entirety. Um, If Democrats retake the chamber, uh, that issue may be squarely in front of you if you win uh, in November. Um, Are you willing to do away with the filibuster entirely? Uh, I'll study the issue, clearly. Uh, It's a big decision. I think everybody recognizes it as a big decision. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, It's been used to stop progress by both parties. Uh, So it's it's something I will take very seriously, and I'll look at both sides. How would you approach voting for the president's cabinet and his judicial nominees? Well, let let me first say it doesn't matter who the president is. It's the same. You know, whether it's Donald Trump in the White House or Vice President Biden wins the election. It's the same answer. I mean, are these folks qualified? Um, Are they do I believe they're going to make good decisions based on data and facts and that they're principled people that want to do what's in the best interest of our country? You know, clearly for judges and justices, I want to see qualified individuals. If an organization like the American Bar Association, as an example, would come out and say this person is clearly unqualified, that's important to me. But I'm not going to have litmus tests. I am not going to be the I think every president, regardless of who it is, has a right to put, put a team together. It's their right to appoint judges and justices when there are vacancies. 
And my intention, if elected to the United States Senate, is I'll take all of these seriously, but I want to see qualified people. Um, speaking of putting the team together, seems uh, if you get to the Senate, that one of the first things that you'll be asked to do is consider Chuck Schumer for majority leader. Would you support his uh, his candidacy on that position? Well, so I am not a politician. I've not been in a legislature before. I don't know how these votes go. I don't know what the, the process is in the United States Senate. Uh, if I am successful in winning the election, I, as you guys know, this is a special election. So even even it's kind of up in the air when myself or Senator McSally would be sworn in. Depends on who wins. But I think that would be wouldn't be in January, probably before that. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'll have to see and I'll have to see who is being nominated to be the future majority or minority leader. You know, we don't, we've got 83 days to go. I, you know, we don't know at this point who is going to be in position to even be voted on to be majority leader. With that in mind, do you have any thoughts on Chuck Schumer? Well, so I, um, you know, I like all Arizonans, right, who follow, you know, politics. You know, I see Senator Schumer on TV. I see Senator McConnell. Um, I think in general, Congress is not been functioning well right now. And everybody, especially in leadership, need to figure out ways to work better together, work across the aisle. There's been a growing push, especially among Democrats, for a government that better reflects our nation's diversity. You're a white male hoping to unseat one of the 17 uh, women who are currently serving in the Senate. What message, what message does your candidacy send to those who want to see more women and more people of color involved in the political process? Yeah, that's a good question, Yvonne, and it's a question I've never had before. You know, often I hear these questions and I've had them before. That's that's pretty new. I can't do anything about being a white male. That's that's me. I think Arizonans have to evaluate me based on my experience, what they hear as I've traveled across the state, my background. I'm an engineer. I'm a test pilot. I was an astronaut. Uh, they've got to make these you know decisions based on who they think will best represent them. Having said that, I do believe I have two daughters of my own. Um, I think our Congress should better, I agree with you, should better represent what our nation looks like. That is an important, that is incredibly important. And I, uh, if you look at my campaign team, it's very reflective of what the state of Arizona looks like. And if elected to the United States Senate, my Senate office will be the same. Senator McSally has challenged you to seven debates. You have accepted two of them. Um, this is a pretty important job, and both of you are now forced to campaign under some pretty challenging circumstances that don't allow the customary uh, campaign um, styles. Uh, why not do more debates in this more limited uh, campaign environment? Well, you're right that the environment is limited in that you can't physically travel and do a lot of 
events in person in public, but we're figuring out other ways to communicate with people. I'm on Zoom calls all the time, phone calls, webinars. Uh, there are tremendous opportunities to communicate with a lot of individuals across the state. I've been meeting with Latino leaders, Latino business owners, uh, folks that have recently lost their jobs through no fault of their own, uh, individuals who have, are having a hard time getting health care, folks that have pre-existing conditions that are really worried about you losing their health care. Uh, so I, uh, we will debate. And I'm excited to debate Senator McSally on these issues, especially because there are big differences between the two of us. And it's important that Arizonans hear that, and they're going to have an opportunity uh, to hear that. You've long called for restrictions on some types of gun sales, and um, you've advocated for different policy proposals uh, when it comes to uh, guns. Some gun rights advocates have sought to cast you as a gun grabber, and this is something that McSally's primary opponent really latched onto and was able to motivate the Republican base with. Can you give our listeners a sense of what you think is both desirable and doable in the near term in a Biden administration with a Democratic Congress on this issue? So I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, and I, I've always been. I've been a gun owner my entire adult life. I own nine firearms, I think. I own more firearms than your average Arizonan. Responsible gun owners. Uh, and, and if you want to own a firearm, you know, to protect your family or target shoot or you're a collector or you're a hunter, responsible gun owners should be able to buy firearms without a lot of government intrusion on that process. I strongly believe that. Uh, at the same time, We've got big loopholes in our laws that allow felons, domestic abusers, people who are dangerously mentally ill, get access to guns without passing a background check. It doesn't make any sense to me, and it doesn't make sense to most Americans. He, even in the state of Arizona, I mean, a Western state with, you know, tradition of gun ownership, like 80, over 80 percent of Arizonans believe you should get a background check before you buy a firearm. Uh, and that's not the case right now. You can go to a local gun show and you don't, you don't even have to give your name and you can buy a firearm. And that is just, just makes society less safe. It affects families. It affects women and children um, disproportionately. So what could we do? We could pass uh, background checks for all gun sales. I think that could be done uh, with a different administration in the White House. Uh, and some different folks in Congress. And I think it can be done in a bipartisan way. Stronger domestic violence leg legislation. You know, this issue affects men and women differently. You know, men are usually shot by strangers. Women are usually shot by people they know. So stronger domestic violence legislation should be passed by the United States Senate in a bipartisan way. So clearly, I think those two things are at the top of the list. Uh, well, we have one last question for you. Um, the uh, uh, name, the naming of uh, Vice President Biden's running mate, uh, Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, what do you make of that, and, and what that suggests for a Biden administration, uh, if it if there should be one? Well, I think it's a great choice for a number of reasons. Um, one was the reason that Yvonne, uh, in her question earlier, um, more representative of what our country looks like. It's great to see a 
woman of color uh, on the presidential ticket uh, with a good path uh, to being in the White House. I think that's a great thing. And I also think she's a great choice. I think she's incredibly smart. Uh, she's got a great record of leadership. Uh, and I think uh, Vice President Biden has a great running mate. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I don't know when we will see you on the campaign trail in person, but we certainly will be tuning in virtually. <laughs> we, can, we can do this anytime. Thanks so much for your time, Commander. We appreciate it. Yvonne, Ron, thank you. It's great seeing all of you, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Ron, we heard Commander Kelly reiterate a lot of the same positions that he's been campaigning on over the past six months since this campaign essentially went virtual. What's your biggest takeaway from, from this interview? You know, I, I think that there were uh, some moments in this interview where Mark Kelly, for all he wants to say, he wants to run a positive campaign and, and very substantive, uh, very uh, issue oriented, really was somewhat evasive. And, and yes, even on the attack himself in a couple cases, you know, specifically, I, I took uh, the, the attacks on China on him by Senator McSally. He was uh, essentially turning this on its head, saying that, you know, Senator McSally is essentially taking her cues from the uh, Republican talking points on this. You know, for Mark Kelly, um, his sort of political brand seems to be this person who doesn't want to get into the mud with uh, his opponents and wants to run a really kind of clear issue oriented campaign. There were still some moments during this interview where I thought, you know, he actually did get down there and, and went after Senator McSally on a few occasions. Uh, one of them that stood out to me was when he was answering our question about uh, what we should make of his business dealings with China. He essentially dismissed this as something that is parroted by Senator McSally as a Republican talking point and that she hadn't really raised this as a concern early on until she was given her orders from uh, Republicans in Washington. Um, you know, one other thing that kind of stood out to me was his uh, evasiveness on the questions of what he would do about uh, doing away with the filibuster, for example, or would he vote for Chuck Schumer as majority leader in the Senate? These are, you know, sort of not especially hard issues. It does seem like um, by now, for a job you've been running for for more than a year, you've probably given this one some thought. I just don't think he wanted to show his hand. Yeah, it's pretty reminiscent of the type of campaign that uh, Kirsten Cinema, then a a congresswoman uh, who was serving in the House, ran back in 2018 when she defeated McSally. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the debate looks like uh, or debates uh, once they meet in person. And as a reminder, last month we did interview Senator Martha McSally about her job in the Senate and her campaign. If you want to hear her positions, please make sure to go back and listen to that episode. Well, that's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend if you would. If you want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at Yvonne Winget. As a courtesy note, audio in today's episode came from AZ Family. 
Today's episode was edited and produced by Maritza Dominguez with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.